Well, yeah, steady theme. Invite some people out to Easter. I was, I rarely watch TV, but there was a, a commercial, a Burlington Coat Factory commercial. What do we do at Easter? Buy a new outfit, go to church. I was like, oh, okay. The checklist on commercials now is, is you get the nice clothes, you go out to church. So people are ready. They're ready to, to flaunt it. If you're buying a new outfit, say, hey, you can wear it twice, Saturday night and Sunday morning. Come on out. But uh, we are in a series that is carrying us from Valentine's Day, our cultural celebration of love, all the way to Easter, which is God's demonstration of his love through Jesus Christ and the cross. So we're in a series called God's Love Language. And uh, if you've got a Bible tonight, you can turn to Luke 15, verse 1, which is where we're going to start. We'll be there in a minute. But uh, I just want to, tonight, we're looking at another image that Scripture gives us to illustrate God's love to help us understand the depth of God's love. That's what we've been working through in this series. And tonight the image is a father and a child. And uh, we've been giving away these these love travel mugs with Starbucks gift cards. And I just want to honor somebody who just became a father and had a child, Neil and Lauren. And uh, I know y'all can fight over the gift card because I know y'all both probably need caffeine right now. But uh, (laughs) it's good to see you, man. Can't wait to see the babe, right? And let Lauren know we love her and miss her. We can't wait to see Olivia. But... uh, We love them. We love you guys, and we're happy that you're here. But we are in this series, and uh, it's based on uh, 1 John 4, 8, where it tells us that God is love. God is love. God loves us. But if the Bible, as it talks about, talks about God as as being above our comprehension, our understanding, his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, if God is love, wouldn't that put love on a similar stratosphere? Hard to comprehend fully, and is that perhaps why we fumble through loving God well, receiving his love well, and loving others well in this life? You know, we've based this series on a quote by Billy Graham, and he said that God loves you, and he loves you with a love that you don't know anything about because there's no human love comparable to divine love. Again, God loves us. God loves you, and he loves us with a love that transcends anything we understand because he transcends everything we understand. But I love that God, in his grace and in his love, first of all, he sent us Jesus, right? The visible image of the invisible God to show us his love. But then secondly, he throughout scripture and Jesus throughout the gospels gives us pictures and parables and metaphors to help us better understand his love. And we've been explaining why pictures. Well, Aristotle once said that the soul does not think without a picture. You maybe never heard that quote before this series, but you probably heard that a picture is worth a thousand words. And we've been talking about how that's not far from reality. Uh, scientists say 90% of what's stored up here is images, that we learn with images. We remember using images. We think using images. That's why 70%, they say, of our population in America are visual learners. So God, it's almost like he understood how he created us, right? He uh, aids us. And gives us these visual metaphors and pictures to hold on to. Like we've said, you might not remember that very first week we talked about the potter and the clay. You might not remember the reference that we pulled from in Isaiah, but you remember the picture of a potter and a clay that God created us to be his image bearers. And where sin marred us and sin vandalized us, he calls us to be conformed again into his image. Specifically, again, this image of Jesus Christ and his love. So it's not just so that we can remember God's love either, but it's so that we can share it. So that we can share God's love with those around us. And these images help. A.W. Tozer, he once said, if we would know God and for others' sake tell what we know, we must try to speak of his love. But he says, all Christians have tried, but none has ever done it very well. I can no more do justice to that awesome and wonder-filled theme than a child can grasp a star. 
Still, by reaching toward the star, the child may call attention to it and even indicate the direction one must look to see it. Someone who has not before known about it may be encouraged to look up and have hope. Again, like Billy Graham says, this is a love that transcends our understanding. And A.W. Tozer says that's probably why we haven't explained it very well. But God, again, he gives us these images, these pictures, these metaphors, these parables in Scripture to grasp it better. And A.W. Tozer gives us this picture of a child and a star. And ironically, again, one of the images tonight we're looking at is of a child. But not just a child in a vacuum, not just a child on their own, a child and their father. Because we, see, we serve a God that doesn't leave us orphaned. He, he is our heavenly father. Speaking of the Holy Spirit in John 14, 18, Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And maybe you know from Facebook or maybe we've told you, but Steph and I were getting ready to adopt out of the foster care system again. We've started that process, and, and people get excited because it is exciting. I believe God's going to use that to, to bless a child that needs a home, right? But it's also sobering because you take these classes, these orientation classes. They show you five to ten-minute videos of just kids in the foster system sharing their heart, and it's heartbreaking. I wouldn't show it here because I don't know what the flood plan is like here. We'd all be crying. We don't have enough tissues because it's sobering. Just to think that there's half a million kids in the U.S. that are looking for security, stability, a sense of permanence, really a home and a family. I love that Isaiah calls Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, as he's prophesying the coming of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. It's a verse we hear often during Christmas where it says he's an everlasting father. That word everlasting, it speaks to security. It speaks to permanence. It speaks to assurance that he's our father and he doesn't leave us or forsake us. And Isaiah, he wasn't getting it confused. Like, you might be thinking, well, he's getting the Trinity mixed up because Jesus is the Son of God. We got God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Like, are we supposed to correct Isaiah? No, but he's teaching us an image that paints a picture of the love of Christ, that it's everlasting, never leaves us or forsakes us like no good father would. And Jesus, in the, in the Gospels, every time he addresses God except for once, he calls him Father. This isn't random. It's intentional. It's a picture that he wants to give us. And you know, some of us have phenomenal fathers. Some of us had phenomenal fathers. And calling God Father, it rolls off the tongue. Singing Good, Good Father a billion times over the last two years has just come naturally. All right, this image is a recent one because Good, Good Father still gets played on Caleb like, what, 16 times a day on the hour. It's fresh imagery. We understand it. But for some of us, we struggle through that song. Calling God Father, it doesn't stir devotion. It might make us wince. Because for us, the earthly picture of fatherhood that we received isn't one that we framed and held on to. It's a collage of broken, hurtful, and sometimes painful things. Sometimes this image that God gives us to behold his love is the same image that keeps us from stepping into it. A sociologist wrote a book called Families and Faith. and He demonstrated that the most important factor in whether a child adopts the faith of the parents is the quality of that child's relationship to the father. It's pointed out that almost all the famous atheists of our time, from Freud to Nietzsche to Sartre, it's French, I don't know how to pronounce it, Hume, Russell, Murray O'Hare, they all have one thing in common, an absentee father or a traumatic relationship with their father. It was Sigmund Freud that noted nothing is more common than for a young person to lose faith in God when he loses respect for his father. See, our earthly fathers are kind of like training wheels that were supposed to prepare us for a relationship with our Heavenly Father. But some were better training wheels than others. But the good news is that God isn't a replica of our fathers. 
God is the original father. God is the father throughout eternity. Before he created, he was still God the father in the Trinity. And Jesus, the one who calls God father again and again, he paints a picture of the father's love for us within the parable of the lost son. You might call it the prodigal son. But again, it's in Luke 15. So hopefully by now you're there. And if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in your pews. So you got really no excuse. But it's Luke 15, I'm going to be reading out of the NIV. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 2 to give the setting and the context. And then I'm going to read from verse 11 through 32. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, him being Jesus. It says, but the Pharisees and the teachers of law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So then if you go to verse 11, it says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. It says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. This was a big party. You can hear the dancing. <laughs> so he called up one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. So the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Before we go any further, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that we can come into your presence tonight. God, and just dig into your word and worship you and praise you for what you did on the cross, Lord God. And I just pray that tonight, as, as Steph was just encouraging us during worship, Lord, the, the pictures we have of you, the images we have of you, the, the thoughts we have of you and your love for us, God, I just pray that each one as we leave this place would line up with your truth of scripture, Lord God. Not with our life experiences or what we projected on you due to circumstance, Lord. I just pray that we would behold you, behold your love and your grace and your gospel in a way that lines up with who you are in this place, Lord. God, every lie, cast it down. God, every perspective that's flawed, God, I pray that you would correct it through your Holy Spirit, Lord God. We want to know you and know your love better so that we can share that love with others. 
And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. But I believe in order to understand this image of God as Father and the Father's love and how it truly applies to us, we have to understand both the sons, how they represent us and how we, like them, have a desperate need for God's gracious love as, as God meets us in our lostness. You know, the parable is, is, is named in, in my Bible and maybe yours, it's called the parable of the lost son. But it would more accurately be called the parable of the lost sons because as we understand this parable, we understand that they both were lost especially as we begin to understand the context and the culture. Again, we started in verse 1 because I wanted to have that context, that he's speaking to what are called the tax collectors and the quote-unquote sinners, right? those that were unclean, the prostitutes, those that, that were looked down upon, the obviously lost. Right? Those represent the younger brothers. But he was also speaking to older brothers, the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And then this, this idea of the father. Culturally, this word, you may, you've probably heard it, Abba, right? It's the, the most intimate, one of the most intimate words used within the family in that culture. Right? It can be translated daddy or dada, right? But it's more than just the lighthearted, carefree words of a toddler. Like, like Raj calls me dada, but then he, like, sticks his nose so far up my brain, he, my nose, he can touch my brain or he slaps me, right? Like, he calls me dada and then is just reckless, right? I'm talking about this is also a word that communicated deep respect and honor. In Judaism, it was also a commanding authority figure that you always obeyed, always respected, always honored. And in Luke 15, both sons disrespect the Abba in ways that in that culture were worthy of being kicked out of your home, sent out from the family, being disowned. I think we understand the younger brother because the younger brother comes to his father and asks for his inheritance early. And in that culture, it's basically saying, I don't care if you're alive or dead. I just want my inheritance. I don't want you as much as I want what you can give me. And I think we grasp that and we get that. But for the older brother, right, he comes up. He hears the dancing. He hears the party. He asks what's going on with his younger brother. And then he refuses to enter the party, which is this public statement that he didn't stand for the decision his father had just made. It was a vote of no confidence in his father's actions. And when the father comes out of the party to talk to him, right, lovingly, the first word he says to him, look, in that culture, if you were going to address your father, you would, you would uh, start with dear father, right? <laughs> Dad. Anything other than look, which basically can be translated, look, you. I mean, even if your kid came up to you in the kitchen and said, hey, look, right, you probably discipline him. But in this culture, you might get chased out of your house with a shoe and disowned. Cultural context matters because you realize it's not just about the lost son. It's about lost sons. Lost sons, multiple, plural, both. But you know, when you talk about culture in our recent culture and in pop culture, uh, somebody that just passed away was a man named Chester Bennington. He was the lead singer of a group called Linkin Park, and he committed suicide at age 41. And I remember when I was in high school and college, they were huge. They were a massive band, and it was kind of nostalgic. And uh, his music, his lyrics always seemed like one step away from, from hope, just one step away. His childhood is one where his parents split when he was, I believe, seven. And he stayed with his dad at first, but his, his dad was unstable, so he went to live with his mom, and that relationship was severed. And then when he was 17, that relationship was severed. He was on the street. He was abused. He gave himself to drugs. So his voice as a musician was one that many related to because of the pain. People could find refuge in it. And when I look back on his lyrics after his death, you know, there's a song called Somewhere I Belong where he says, I want to heal. I want to feel like I'm close to something real. I want to find something I've wanted all along. Somewhere I belong. He came from this broken home, broken relationship with his father, 
feeling alienated and lost. And it echoes, as we talked about a couple weekends ago with the sheep and the shepherd, this idea that as humanity, no matter what our background is, we long for something more, and sometimes we don't even know what that more is. And regardless of what our home situation looked like, there's an ache and a void, and sometimes we don't even know what will fill it. And so life becomes a journey, a journey of pursuit of what we think will fill that void. We want to find something we've wanted all along, this place to belong, this home. But I would tell you tonight that your journey isn't to find some place you belong or to find that place and try to work your way in or earn it, but you've always had a place to belong. May we awaken to the fact that we were created for relationship with the Father, intimate communion with the Father. And yes, sin broke that, and because of that, we're lost. But Jesus paid the cost at the cross, and now the Heavenly Father graciously, lovingly anticipates us stepping back into relationship with him. Not because we earned it, not because we went on some long journey to find it, but because of what Jesus Christ did. You know, in life, we journey and we wander and we end up lost in various ways, and we see him in this parable. There's the journey of self-discovery. Represented by the younger brother. I'm going to find my truth, find out how I want to live my life, and I'm going to pursue it as best I can to find happiness. But then there's the way of moral conformity, represented by the older brother. Complying, submitting, and working hard, striving to earn your place. And the younger brother, on his crash course of self-discovery, we get a picture of sin that we can understand pretty traditional. Any religious person can look at his story and say, yeah, that sin, disrespecting his father, spending money on prostitutes, self-indulgence. I don't need to highlight him for us to realize, yeah, he, he, was, he was lost. He was literally lost geographically, coming back home. But the older brother, he was very, very good. In the parable, he says to his dad, I've done everything you said. I never did anything wrong. And his dad doesn't correct him. He was good. And yet he too is alienated from the father's heart. Alienated from God's heart. He too was using the father to get what he really loved. Position, status, wealth. And he did it by being very, very good. Again, in the context, the Pharisees are listening. And within the framework of organized religion, the Pharisees were very, very good. Within the framework of organized religion, they were better than you. They were better than me. Like to be a teacher of, of, of the word and a Pharisee, you had to have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized. Memorized. Let's be, let's be serious here. How many of you have actually read through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? That's the, that's the gauntlet when you're on your, uh, your yearly reading plan where you just tap out. Like, I need some Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I know annually Leviticus 13 is where they, they examine infectious skin diseases. And I'm like, I, I just know I'm going to drink coffee. I'm not going to eat before that. It's gross. It's when I'm like, Jesus, I'm so glad I was born in the 21st century to minister. I ain't trying to preach, and then you guys come up with your rashes, and I determine whether it's eczema or leprosy. It's like, thank you, Lord. So Leviticus 13, I'm, it's, it's my least favorite book of the Bible, but in a, I guess in a humorous way. But we get through those books. They had those memorized. Memorized, right? We realize that the older son, he wasn't lost in spite of his goodness. He was lost because of it. Ironically, it was his self-righteousness that was keeping him from his father. Sure, he was with the father. He served the father, but it wasn't out of love. It was a means to an end. If I'm good to my father, he'll bless me. And maybe we have that perspective. If I'm good to God, I do what he says, he'll bless me. It's a contract, not a relationship. But the older brother shows us that activity for God, proximity to God, is not the same as knowing him in a loving way relationship. Activity 
for God, proximity to him, it isn't what saves. Jesus is what saves. Jesus is what we need. And the parable, you realize this parable is one of the things that got Jesus killed. Because you look at Jesus' ministries, healing people, having compassion on people, and you're just like, why did they kill him? It's because he told stories like this that were aimed directly at the Pharisees, and they didn't take it very well. But again, sin isn't just breaking the rules. It's putting yourself in the place of God, Savior and judge specifically in this parable, attempting to save yourself by self-righteousness and then standing in judgment, not just over others, but how the dad makes decisions because I've been good to him. If I live a good life, shouldn't God give me good things? Thinking that we can be our own savior, our own judge. It's the posture of the Pharisees. And we realize in this parable, both sons end up outside the house. Both sons end up lost. And ironically, at the end of the parable, the younger brother, he's back in the home. He's a part of the party where we all want to be. But then the older brother, we don't, we don't even see. He's not in the home. We don't know what his response is. And that should be sobering, sobering even, because often we're the older son. We're active in the church. We're checking the boxes, but we're not checking our heart and our motivation. Sitting inside a church unchecked, we often drift toward the older son. We think I'm doing pretty good, and we can neglect our need for the love of Jesus Christ, for the gospel. I need grace daily because we've all sinned and fallen short. As the Bible says, we've all sinned and fallen short. There's two types of sinners. There's self-aware sinners, like the younger brother was when he came home, and then there's self-righteous sinners, like the older brother. that don't even realize it. So may we be aware, and then again, may we awaken to this fact that we don't need to go on a journey to find somewhere we belong. We don't have to earn somewhere we belong. We were created with somewhere to belong. Relationship with God our Father. And where sin broke that, Jesus healed that through the cross and through grace. And God the Father graciously, lovingly, like the Father in this parable, waits for us to return. But you know, sometimes it's wounds that keep us away. Again, our, you could call our earthly fathers training wheels that were supposed to get us prepared for our relationship with our heavenly Father. But some were better training wheels than others. Our fathers are supposed to paint this picture of God the Father's love, but sometimes it looks more like a Jackson Pollock where it splatters and you're trying to make sense of it all. So we end up wounded, and those wounds can keep us away. And again, sometimes, sometimes this image that God has given us to understand his love is the same image that keeps us from crawling into his lap. Defense mechanisms that we build up to cope with our earthly fathers are the same that can keep us from engaging our heavenly father. Now, what am I talking about? I just want to look at three cases and how God's love is different and how God's love heals us and how God's love saves us. And the first is the passive father. You know, I read a stat, and I, I believe I shared it last year. I read it last year, and a child in the U.S. is more likely to have a dog in their home than a father in their home. It's a crazy stat. And you know what's more sobering and painful? I didn't read that in an article about some epidemic of fatherhood. I read it in a, in a, I don't remember why I was reading this article, but it was about the psychological benefits of pets. I don't even like pets. <laughs> I don't remember why I was reading it, but that made it even more sobering. They weren't lamenting the fact that half of the homes in the U.S. don't have fathers or you're more likely to have a, a dog than a father. But even just absent fathers, and then there's ones that are there, but they're passive fathers. Not fully there, not fully engaged. They don't give you their best time. They give you the rest of their time, and sometimes that's nothing. And that can be just as damaging psychologically. And what's interesting is when you read the parable of the lost son, like when he asks him for his inheritance, he didn't have to say yes. He could have said, shut up, go mow the lawn, right? He didn't have to say, oh, here's everything. He could have said, no, what are you, stupid, and, beat him, and rushed him out of the house. He, could have, he didn't have to say yes. It's like, is he being passive? 
Did he passively say yes so we didn't have to confront him? Again, the expectation that culture would, he would have driven that younger son out of his home with verbal, physical blows. Like, you don't disrespect your father like that. Was he being passive in that moment? If you keep reading, you realize he's not. Because if you keep reading, you realize that God the Father, in his love, he initiates. That God initiates. Romans 5, 8 says that God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. While we were still lost out there in the pigsty, he died for us. He initiated salvation. And you see in the, the parable that the father goes out to both sons in order to bring them back in. For the younger son, he was waiting on the porch for him to return before running him down, for running out to go get him. And we shared this a few weeks ago, I believe, in a close to worship. But back then, owners of estates, older men, they didn't run. They wanted to be like a boss all the time. And they didn't want to lift up their, their garments to run and show off their legs. It just wasn't something they did. And ironically, in this picture, he's culturally acting more like a mother, right? Emotionally full of abandon to love their child. And I love that he steals the son's moment. The son's got the entire speech rehearsed. And he doesn't even let him get to that. He embraces him and kisses him, right? The, the son doesn't have to give his speech and beg and grovel in order for the father to love him. The father's love initiates everything. He opens with the embrace and the kiss. He doesn't make him earn it. And then you see with the older son that the father, who again had been disrespected by his older son not coming in, he still comes out and initiates a loving conversation with his older son. It doesn't hinder him. He initiates. Again, while we were still sinners, while we were still lost, still alienated, Jesus initiated our redemption through Jesus Christ on the cross. That's love. That's the love of a father. And that's how God shows that he initiates. Well, then secondly, maybe there's the never satisfied father. The one you never hear say, I love you. The one who no matter what never says, I'm proud of you. You know, never satisfied parents can lead to insecure children. Children who become teenagers and adults who ask questions like, have I done enough? What is enough? And it wedges its way into our spirituality with thoughts like, would God love me more if I was a better witness? Would God love me more if I knew more of my Bible? Would God love me more if I spent more time in prayer? Spiritually, we're insecure children desperate to be worthy. It's what the church in Galatians fell into this trap where people came in and said, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, but you need Jesus, and then you need to be circumcised. You need to do this over here, as if that wasn't all sufficient, as if God still wasn't satisfied, as if we still weren't worthy. There's a great quote by the theologian Thomas Merton where he once said, God is asking me, the unworthy, to forget my unworthiness and dare to advance in the love that has redeemed and renewed us all and to laugh, after all, at the preposterous idea of worthiness. <laughs> God is asking me the unworthy to forget my unworthiness and laugh after all at the preposterous idea of worthiness or ever being worthy. Bob Goff, who's a contemporary author, he says, insecurity wants us to keep track of our failures, but grace doesn't even write them down. Insecurity wants us to keep track of our failures, but grace doesn't even write them down. If we get a picture of a God who's a father that's never satisfied, though, we can picture him keeping score and tally. Like the younger son, we might have an impulse to, to give God our, our list. And there's nothing wrong with repentance, but God doesn't even keep it, right? He separates us as far as the east is from the west. And like the older son, we may have the impulse to list all that we've done right and hold it up to God. But God isn't keeping count. Why? Because God reconciles. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. You think about it, God is certainly justified in looking at us with dissatisfaction. What satisfaction should a holy, righteous God find in my sin? 
But he sent Jesus to reconcile the world to him through the cross, no longer counting sins. He doesn't keep a tally. He doesn't keep a naughty and nice list. He's not dissatisfied because Jesus satisfied his wrath and justified us through the cross. And instead of reminding us of our mistakes, instead of counting them against us, instead of holding them over our head, God took them upon himself in Jesus. Again, insecurity, it wants us to keep track of our failures, but grace doesn't even write them down. God doesn't even write them down. The punishment due us was poured out on Jesus. When you think of punishment and you think of parenting, maybe you think of the, the time bomb father, prone to outbursts, impulsive, maybe physically or verbally abusive. You know, it's hard to love somebody that you're terrified of. It leads to people that are raised hypervigilant, quote-unquote control freaks, people that have a hard time trusting anybody with power and authority. And even if you didn't have abusive parents, maybe you just have good parents that disciplined you, you probably had those times when you were a teenager and you were driving your car, you knew you were coming home and you had blown it, you know, you disobeyed, maybe you were late for curfew, and you knew they were going to be there waiting for you, right? You think, man, maybe if I just stay out long enough, they'll fall asleep on the couch and I can sleep in, but never happened, never happened. They're always sitting there waiting. And so when you're driving home, you, you like the prodigal son, the first younger son, you got your speech ready. Dad, I can explain, right? <laughs> You got that speech ready. It's ready to roll. And as Jesus is telling this parable, I can imagine, right, the tax collectors and the, the quote-unquote sinners, they're listening to this parable as the young son is coming home thinking, man, what does penance look like? What, it, what is it going to cost to settle up with God? And I'd imagine the tax collectors and Pharisees are standing back like, yeah, he's about to destroy this punk, right? But God doesn't do that. We see that he actually defends him. He ran to his son. And I believe one of the reasons why is so that those that would have met him on the road and scorned him, shamed him, said nasty things to him, he'd beat them to them. He defends the return when he gets to him. He urges them, hey, let's, let's welcome him back. Let's give him a warm welcome. Let's spark the party. He doesn't degrade his son. He defends him. doesn't accuse him. He advocates for him. 1 John 2.1, John says, I'm writing this so that you will not sin. I'm writing this so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. In Scripture, we get this picture of the enemy as the accuser of the brethren. But Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our defender. There's a great story of somebody who uh, was meeting Pope Francis. And they were, like, freaking out about their faith. Because their story was every time they went to pray, they'd fall asleep. And they're thinking, what's wrong with me? Is my faith deficient? My prayer life isn't good enough. Is God angry with me? And, and they asked Pope Francis what could spirit, spiritually be wrong with them, right? They're distraught. And all he said to them was, nothing. You just need some more sleep, right? When you realize God gives you grace, you can give yourself grace. Again, he says, I'm writing this to you so you will not sin, but you can give yourself grace in this idea that you don't have to carry the weight of hypervigilance, flinching at the thought of failing and what God might do. God isn't a ticking time bomb waiting for one more tally, one more strike so that he can strike us. I find a good litmus test for how we picture God's love for us as a father and picture his grace is when you do come to him in repentance. Because repentance is important. What's your picture of his face? Is he waiting on the porch, belt in hand, ready to whoop you? <laughs> or is he God the father that runs to you and embraces you and kisses you even before you even have a chance to repent? Is he inside the party? Is you're outside just kind of looking out the window, shaking his head at you like, punk, you better get in here. Or... Does he go out to meet you and speak to you and commune with you? 
See, God isn't looking for a more obedient slave. He's looking for a more beloved son and daughter. And we just need to learn to receive that love and awaken again to this reality that we've always had a place to belong. Sin broke it. Christ healed it. And God is graciously, lovingly waiting for us to step back into that relationship. It says in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, it says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. See, our journey isn't one of earning our spot into the family. Through Jesus' blood, it's blood, it's family, it's inheritance. We're co-heirs. And you think about it, the prodigal hadn't earned that inheritance. And the older brother could never earn that inheritance. No more than they earned a spot as a son. Like, I didn't earn being born into my family. By grace, I was born into my family in the United States, in Massachusetts in 1984. Right? I didn't earn that. It was grace through and through. Same thing for these sons. But again, our culture, it calls us onto this journey, this pilgrimage of self-discovery, finding yourself. You'll only find yourself truly, deeply in God. You want to find your identity? Find out who God is, and that will inform your identity like nothing else can. Don't seek out who you are. Seek out who God is, and that will inform who you are. Like we were talking about with the sheep and the shepherd in Psalm 23. Psalm 23 makes zero mentions of sheep. But if the Lord is a shepherd... Guess what? You a sheep. <laughs> this is just deduction. If God the Father is love, then we are his beloved sons and daughters in Christ. He's not a passive father, and we don't have to be insecure. He's not a never satisfied father or a ticking time bomb father. He is a God that defends. He is a God that initiates. He's a God that reconciles. If God is loved, or if he is love, a loving father, then we're his beloved sons and daughters. So we don't have to search or strive. We don't have to try to earn his acceptance or operate out of trying to earn it. We can operate out of assurance. And dare to define yourself as beloved by God your Father. See, the gospel of grace is like a child that's never experienced anything but love and who tries her best because she is loved. The possibility of her parents to stop loving her never enters her mind. She knows her mistakes don't jeopardize that love. Their love isn't based on performance. It's a love that initiates, reconciles, and defends always. That's what it's like to live beloved. John 4.19, though. We start with John 4.8. God is love. John 4.19 says we are to love because he loved us first. So we've only got a few minutes before we close. But, again, every one of these sermons in this series, what does this mean for our love? If we better understand God's love as a father, we know we're supposed to share that. So how does that affect the way we love? And first, becoming a parent this past year, knowing there's another one on the way, realizing that God is, is our father, and that we as parents paint this picture of his love kind of elevates the bar a little bit, right? <laughs> Man, may we love our children well. Good old John Mayer has the song Daughters where he says, Father, be good to your daughters. Daughters will love like you do. Girls become lovers who turn into mothers, so mothers be good to your daughters too. And it applies to our sons, but he had just a nice little hook and it rhymed nice. So. But for daughters and our sons, love them well because it's going to determine their love and how they picture God's love. You know, there's a stat that says 85% of Christian parents admit that while they acknowledge they're responsible for their child's spiritual development, they weren't personally engaging in any activities that might guide their children to spiritual maturity except taking them to church. So may we be parents that initiate. The same way that the father ran to his son so that other voices wouldn't shame him, may we run toward those opportunities to raise our children 
inform their identity because if we don't, other voices will. Other voices will. But then secondly, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 through 16, Paul says, I'm not writing all this as a neighborhood scold just to make you feel rotten. He's writing the church in Corinth. This is Paul speaking. He says, I'm writing as a father to you, my children. I love you and I want you to grow up well, not spoiled. There are a lot of people around who can't wait to tell you what you've done wrong. But there aren't many fathers willing to take the time and effort to help you grow up. It was as Jesus helped me proclaim God's message to you that I became your father. I'm not, you know, asking you to do anything that I'm not already doing myself. If you got an NIV Bible in front of you, it's the verse where he says there's a lot of teachers, but there's not a lot of fathers. What's the difference? Well, teachers pass on information, but fathers pour out their lives. Teachers have an intellectual connection, but fathers, they have a heart connection. And teachers teach lessons, but fathers lead by example with their life. But so often, we want to advise from a distance. We want to correct people from a keyboard, make correction without any investment. But if we're going to love like God the Father does, God calls us to go deeper, invest more meaningfully, and initiate. You know, if there's people you know that are lost, the heart of the Father goes out to them. For truly his hands and feet, we won't just stand on the proverbial porch or our literal porch and look out at the people around us who are lost and think, huh. No, <laughs> the Father's moved by compassion. And compassion is more than just a feeling. It provokes you to act, to go out. So may we do that. Have that love of a father that initiates, that advocates, that defends. There's enough accusers. May we invest and have that love of a father. But if I could have the worship team come up. Tim Keller wrote a book. I reread it preparing for this sermon. So if, you, if this stimulates an interest, he wrote a book called Prodigal God. It's phenomenal. But it's called prodigal God because the word prodigal doesn't mean wayward or lost like we assume. It means recklessly spendthrift. Basically, it means wastefully extravagant. And sure, the, the younger son was a prodigal in the fact that he took his inheritance and he wasted it. But a more important picture for us to grasp in this parable is that the father was prodigal with his grace and his love. He was extravagant. He was recklessly extravagant with it. God the father is a God of great expenditure. And his reckless grace, it's our only hope. And that's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. We were created for relationship with God, our creator, our father. Sin broke it. Our sin, my sin, not just sins, but sin. Sin nature broke that relationship. Jesus paid the price of the cross to restore it. And then it's up to us. What's our response? What's our response? God's waiting graciously. God's waiting lovingly. For our response. And we don't have to go on some journey to find it. We don't have to, like the older son, attempt to earn it by our works or striving. We simply have to receive it. And that's good news. <laughs> because the more you read the Bible, the more you see it's adamant that there's nothing outside of Jesus in this world that can save us. There's nothing in us that can save us in our own efforts. There's nothing outside us that can pull us up and save us outside of Jesus. But we're such self-reliant people in our culture, hell-bent on self-sufficiency and being independent, that we bristle at the thought of receiving something solely as a gift, by grace and grace alone. You look at all other religions, and, and we, we have to accumulate enough effort, try to tip the scale in our favor. And it's almost human nature to think that way, because again, we want to be self-sufficient. But putting your faith in Jesus Christ means you utterly renounce any other hope of being found righteous before God. Do you find yourself putting your trust in your good works or your activity or the fact that 
You find yourself close to God sitting in a pew on the weekend. Faith is saying, man, I'm entirely insufficient. The bad news is we're lost sons, but the good news is we have a prodigal God, as Timothy Keller would say, one who gives extravagant grace and reckless love. And if we could stand, I want to worship him tonight. God, we thank you that as we sang earlier, it's the overwhelming reckless love of God. And, and you topple lies, you topple untruths, you topple the shadows in our minds as we were singing about earlier, Lord God. And I just pray tonight, God, that you would realign how we picture your love, realign how we picture our relationship with you, realign how we picture sin and repentance, Lord God. Not just the things we do wrong, but even just us trying to be our own saviors, us trying to be our own judge, Lord God. I pray that we would lean fully onto Jesus Christ. God, that you would remind us again of the work of the cross. You would remind us again of the gospel and the good news. And God, that it would stir up a response in us. Maybe we responded at an altar once. I know me, I respond to it daily. I need grace like the air I breathe. But God, I pray that we also would respond by sharing it. We don't just need these pictures of your love. There's broken people all around us, lost people that need this picture of your love. So God, I pray that, man, as we probably hear this parable for the some of us the hundredth time tonight, God, that you would just remind us, like Peter says in his epistle, I'm going to keep reminding you of these things even though you know them, God, because they should be on the tip of our tongue everywhere we go. The goodness of God, the grace of God, the work of the cross, the, the power in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord. And I pray that as we worship you tonight, God, you would stir that up in us. Remind us of your goodness. Remind us of your grace. Remind us of your good news. And we'll close in prayer in a minute. It's no shadow you won't light up. Mountain you won't climb up. Coming after me. There's no